Two people can look at the exact same thing and they can see it totally differently. So just at a very practical level, some of you have grown up loving a sports team and when you see that team, it does something to your heart that someone else who's never heard of them, seen them, it, they're affected nothing by it. Uh, I'd say the same is true about Ras Al-Khaimah for those of us who've lived here for a while. We see her in all her beauty. If someone comes in and pokes fun at our beautiful emirate, we get defensive. We love this place for all her strengths and weaknesses because she's ours. I was thinking the same about Joseph and Sonam and the pictures they've sent of their new church plant in Nepal. To see those 15 to 20 people gathered for worship in the mountains of Nepal to us is, is beautiful. To so many others, it's not worth a second glance. It's not just what you see, is it? it it's, it's how you see what you see. You know, the same is true with Jesus. What you see when you see Jesus depends on how you see. How you see the world. How you see yourself. How you see him. When Jesus stood trial before Pilate, he was just so clearly seen in, in many different ways. And the question for you as we look at the text that we'll look at this morning is how do you see Jesus? What do you see when you see him. Turn to John 19. John 19, that's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Uh, if you're looking at the Bible and it's new to you, chapter is in the big number, and we're going to look at 1 to 16. Those are the small numbers, the verse numbers. And if you're new here, we're going to read this passage, and Lord willing, we are just going to expose what's there. We're going to see what the Bible teaches us about this text and about Jesus Christ this morning. As we come to this text, Jesus has been, by demand of the crowd, handed over, substituted for Barabbas. He's innocent. We know that from Pilate. And here we read what happens next. Look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him and said, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? 
Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This ends the reading of God's word. Here's what I want you to take away from this text. Simply, behold your king. Behold your king. See the glory of this innocent man delivered to be crucified for the guilty. Behold your king. See the glory of this innocent man delivered over to be crucified for the guilty. So the first point we'll see this morning is exactly what Pilate tells us to do. Behold the man. Behold the man. Look at this in the first eight verses. As we work through this account this morning, in one sense, I want you to kind of think of yourself as a juror. You're in a courtroom scene. You're not impartial or dispassionate. What you see, what you do with Jesus as you go through this text matters eternally. It did for that crowd that day question as you turn to this chapter is what would Pilate do with Jesus? He found him not guilty. He has him in his custody. And we read, he took Jesus and flogged him. The Roman soldiers beat him. Now this was not the more severe flogging that he would have received a bit later, but you should never presume that the Roman soldiers would have been gentle. Jews turned against him, and now in this act, the Gentiles. John means for us to see that Jesus was opposed by the world, and they crowned him, not with a royal crown, with a crown of thorns, of the crown that the thorns would have been long spikes, and they would have dug them into his head. It would have caused him to bleed. A purple robe on his body. Most likely in verse 3, they came up to him one by one, individually striking him, and together yelling, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, in the empire, it would have been normal for uh, Caesar to have been greeted with, Hail, Caesar. There's no way to miss the mockery. Yet even as they mocked him, they spoke the truth about him, We know that from the beginning of this gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 49, 
Nathaniel at the very beginning confessed Jesus to be the king of Israel. But here, under Pilate, Jesus was mocked, he was flogged, he was struck, he was humiliated because he claimed to be a king. It's in this pitiful state that Pilate brought him back out in verse 4. And he said, see, I'm bringing him back out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. It's the second time Pilate has said he's innocent. He brought him out with the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He was meant purposely to, to look visibly weak, to look humiliated. And it's as he stood there and there's blood going down his face that Pilate said to everyone there, behold the man. It has the sense of, look at this pathetic man. Look at him. And all of his weakness and his humiliation, do you think that he is a threat to Rome? Do you take his claim to be a king seriously? He hoped this would end it for the Jews. You handed him over to me. I punished him. Look at this pathetic figure. Behold the man. And yet if the soldiers, when they mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, were speaking of Jesus better than they knew, so also did Pilate. When he said to the crowd, Behold the man. In his weak, humiliated, pathetic state, here was the man from heaven. Here was the man who had obeyed God the Father perfectly, who had revealed the Father truly. Here was the man who in life had succeeded at every point where every other human being had failed. Here was the man of sorrows the only man in the universe who could accomplish salvation. Pilate meant for the crowd to see there's nothing to see here. But if you see him with different eyes, you, you can see there's everything to see. The Word who's been made flesh, the one through whom and for whom the universe was created. He had lowered himself so low that he stood there with a crown of thorns. The God-given, God-declared mark of the curse that would come from the ground after Adam fell into sin. We read God's very speech to Adam in Genesis 3 verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Behold the man who wears the thorns of this sin-cursed world on his very head. The, the Roman soldiers didn't just praise him better than they knew. They crowned him better than they knew. Who, who could ever make up something like this, that the God who cursed the ground with 
thorns because of man's sin would in the, in the son come into his own creation and wear thorns because he's paying for man's sin. Behold the man. What you do in response to Pilate's call, what you see when Pilate says to behold him, it depends on how you see. You either see a weak, humiliated man whose claim to being a king is laughable, or you see the man upon whom the hope of the world hangs. There's a saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. That was Jesus that day. He was either one or the other to those who looked at him. That's Jesus today. Even as he's held out before you, he will either be received, treasured as the son from heaven, or he's not received at all. When we do behold him, we're meant to see that when God the Son took on flesh, when he entered into humanity, he committed himself to never taking off his humanity again. So in our day, and certainly in this place, it's the divinity of Jesus that is debated. But in the early church, it was the humanity. It was only by taking on flesh that he could accomplish salvation for people in the flesh. And it was only by taking on flesh that he could genuinely sympathize with you who trust him in your weakness. Behold the humanity of the Savior. We live in a world that believes that the solutions to our greatest problems come from inside of us, that our problems are outside of us, and the gospel flips that on its head. It says to you, your, your greatest problem is inside of you. And the problem, or the, the solution has come from the outside. The Son has come from heaven. God the Son has come into the world, and He's joined with our ranks. He's joined with humanity. And as a man, He did what no man can do. He obeyed the Father. He fulfilled righteous requirements that are required of you in your life. That's what he was doing even that day. They should have praised him, but they couldn't see who he was. His humanity also means for you that his concern for you is real. It's realistic. So the fact that he lived life in the flesh means that whatever struggle you know, Christian, against temptation, against sin, loneliness, or suffering, he knows truly, and he knows more deeply than you know. His becoming a man means that there's no struggle, there's no trial that you walk through that it's abstract to him, that's academic to him. He really can sympathize with you in your weakness. He can help you in your temptation. He was tempted in every way you've known temptation, even this week, and he resisted. So, who he is as Savior does not mean he's disgusted by your temptations, by your failings. Maybe you failed miserably this week. It means he's ready to give you help. He has power to overcome. It's why he took on flesh. When you've trusted in him, he's on your side. He's with you. Be 
because he took on flesh, it means right now there is a man in heaven who stands for you in the flesh. And that changes everything about life on earth. Can you not just hear what Jeff read to us from Isaiah in the background as we read this? He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. If we would ever see him in his glory, we must see him in his glory as he stood there despised and rejected. As you behold him from his word, do you see how off, upside down our world is? What kind of a world must this be if it would oppose this man? Oh, the world is beautiful. It's wonderful. And it opposes Jesus. What are the ways that you're tempted by this world? Do you long for this world to approve of you, to applaud you? Do you want security from this world? Do you believe the promises that this world makes? Remember what this world is at its core. As we behold the man, we learn to love the world as God did. How did God love this world? He sent his only son into this world. We bear witness to the Son. We obey and live for the glory of the Son. We see more in the weak and humiliated Jesus than anything this world can offer us. So see the wisdom of this world as it really is when you see what the world did to Jesus. He willingly endured to save. Behold the man Jesus. On that day, Pilate wanted that crowd to see him as harmless and pathetic, that he had done enough to him. The Roman soldiers saw him as a political prisoner. He should be mocked. What did the Jews see? Well, look at verse 6. They saw him as a man worthy of crucifixion. In response to Pilate's call to behold him, they, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And you can hear the exasperation in Pilate's voice as he said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He knew that they had no authority to crucify him, but they wouldn't accept Pilate's judgment. So with Pilate's declaration here, once again that he found no guilt in him, it's the third time he's issued this verdict. And what do the Jewish leaders want? They want him to be found guilty. So they say back to him, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he's made himself the son of of God. They were referring to uh, their own Torah, Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Now, why did they bring Jesus to Pilate in the first place? Because Pilate could do to Jesus what they couldn't. Pilate could crucify him. But the only way he could crucify him was to find him guilty under Roman law. And under that law, what did Pilate declare? He's innocent. And yet notice in verse 7, they're no longer talking about him being a king. They say he must die because he's made himself the son of God. It's fascinating, isn't it, that, that no one was confused about the claims Jesus made for himself in his own day. There was complete clarity 
about his claims. It's that he claimed to be the son of God, why his own earthly enemies wanted him to be killed. Now, if just any man were to claim to be the son of God, uh, he wouldn't deserve not just your worship, he wouldn't deserve your respect. No good man would claim that for himself unless it's true. But if it is true, how guilty is that crowd? They will not accept that this man in that humiliated state could hold such a place of exaltation in the universe. They could not see him. And yet, this humiliated man who the Jews accused and claimed that he said that he was the son of God, calls Pilate, verse 8, to be even more afraid. Why was Pilate afraid? Pilate was a Roman ruler, and as a Roman, he would have certainly been superstitious. They, they believed in a number of gods, and they would have sought in different ways to pacify these gods. And in Jesus, Pilate had seen something very different. He had seen in him power that he could not explain. Pilate must have wondered, are you in fact divine? The Romans would have called them divine men. Pilate must have wondered, are you one of those? This beaten, bloodied, humiliated man claimed to be a king. But the Jewish leaders want him dead because they're saying he's the son of God. Well, who is he? For Pilate, he said to the crowd, behold the man. And he will also say to this crowd, behold your king. That's the second thing we see from this text. Behold your king. There from verse 9 to 16. When we come to verse 9, we're back in Pilate's headquarters. Do you remember in the first round of interrogations between Pilate and Jesus, he, he said to Jesus, are you a king? Well, now his question is, where are you from? Now, I ask that question to people all the time. I actually asked some of you that last week when I, I met you. And of course, all I mean by that is what city, what nation are you from? But this issue of where Jesus is from has been an issue throughout this gospel. So, back in John 7, we read this, beginning in verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Or the religious leaders were protesting him in John 9, and they said, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. It's the question Pilate wants to know. But Jesus doesn't answer him. He remains silent. It wasn't long before this moment that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And remember Jesus said, do you say this of your own or do you say this because someone told you? And Pilate had no interest for himself personally. He just had to dispose of this case. He didn't want to know who he really was. And remember, Jesus reveals himself and Jesus hides himself. And that's all based on your posture toward Jesus. 
And Jesus is not there to help relieve Pilate of this superstitious fear that he has of him. He did not understand what Jesus meant when he told him that my kingdom is not from this world. He will not believe Jesus when he tells him, ultimately, I'm not from this world. So Jesus didn't speak. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I have to think that Pilate's fear only increased as he interrogated Jesus. Certainly his anger did. He responds in verse 10, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? It's funny, Pilate is filled with fear and he's telling Jesus how much authority that he has. Now he did have authority in one sense. He had authority over Romans and he had authority especially over those that were under his rule that were not Romans. He could, by his word, have him crucified and yet the man with so much authority cannot get Jesus to even speak. It's not Jesus that has a superstitious fear of Pilate. It's Pilate that has a superstitious fear of Jesus. And again and again, we're seeing that Pilate is a man who claims to have so much authority, but how much authority does he really have? I mean, he's being pushed around by the Jewish leaders. He's being pushed around by the Jewish crowd. He can't get this lowly prisoner to tell him where he's from. He may have said, behold, the man Jesus, but the text is screaming at us, behold, the man Pilate. Which one would you say is a true king? And what's more, Jesus tells Pilate just how limited your authority really is. Verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus is from above. He tells Pilate, your authority is from above. And Pilate is blind to both. From above means from God. Jesus comes from the realm of the world where God dwells. God has given Pilate this authority. So from the mouth of Jesus, he's saying, Pilate, you're under the sovereign rule of God. So why didn't Jesus speak? Why hasn't he taken action since this unjust, wicked scheme began? Because Jesus trusts that every single person involved, every wicked act is under the authority of God the Father. That while so many have done and are going to do real evil to him that they will be responsible for, they cannot stop the purposes of God. More than that, he's confident that God's sovereign power so works that it works through evil for good. And I can't think of any greater example in the world than every event leading up to the cross and the cross itself. Jesus is under the Father's authority. He's come to do His will. He's submitting to the Father in all of this. This is what trust in the Father looks like in the face of the greatest evil. He believes the Father in every moment, behind every person he sees. And as he looks at Pilate, 
he sees Pilate for what he is. One more human being being used for purposes beyond what he can possibly understand or fathom. Brothers and sisters, we do live in a chaotic world. It's unfair. It can be unjust. Trust God, the Father. Maybe you sit there today and your life is chaotic or you're perplexed by your life. But there is calm and there is confidence and fixing in your mind that there's nothing for you in Jesus Christ, your trusting Christ, that comes to you apart from God the Father's purpose and plan. You, as a Christian, are meant to look at your circumstances, your life, your trials differently than the world does. What do you need to see differently this morning? Imagine if you simply were free to trust that God, who is more good than you can imagine, is doing more good to you in Christ than you can imagine, and working more good for you in your circumstances than you can imagine. Imagine if you believed that. It's true. Here's Jesus, as Pilate is wicked, as so many others were wicked. He knows they're nothing more than pawns in the hand of God being used for eternal good and eternal glory. And the same is true for you who trust Jesus Christ. Whatever that circumstance is that you don't want or you wouldn't have asked for, that injustice that's happening at your workplace, that difficulty in your social world, all of it working for good, your good in Christ. Jesus said to Pilate, your authority is from above. That's true of every earthly circumstance and government that you face. God reigns from above. What else do you need to see differently? Well, I would say look around your life. You're not in a random set of circumstances. Who is in your life that you need to see differently than the world would tell you to see them? What's God doing in your life that you need to see from a God-given lens? What do you need to pray over and evaluate? All things are from above. Your very ordinary life is filled with eternally weighty opportunities. But can you see them? Or do you not see as God means for you to see? What did Jesus mean when he said that the one handed, who handed him over had the greater sin? Well, I think he's implicating Caiaphas. Yes, Judas, but Caiaphas directly handed him over. But it is also clear that according to Jesus, there's greater and lesser sin. All sin is damnable, worthy of condemnation to hell. But there's greater and lesser acts of sin. So the hate that's in our hearts is worthy of condemnation. But there's a greater degree when that hate works itself out into actual murder. Jesus condemned those in his own generation who'd seen him, who'd heard him teach, seen his signs. He said, the judgment for you will be greater than places like Tyre and Sidon who did not see and did not hear what you did. So Caiaphas handed him over. Pilate, guilty, not as great. Pilate's being portrayed here as sinful, yes, but he's passive. 
throughout this. Still guilty. Whatever questions you might have about that, I'm more than happy to talk to you uh, about it. You can be confident in this. In the end, the judge of all the earth will do right. One of God's greatest works still to come in the world is when he will judge every single person in the universe. And we know that through Scripture, he's given that judgment over to Jesus Christ. Christ will vindicate his own before the world, and he will judge those who have opposed him in his authority. Now, one of the ways you should think through this is recognizing that it's a stewardship to hear God's Word. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, it's a stewardship of growth and grace. Uh, it should be said, clearly, it's not a small matter to sit under God's Word. This isn't a neutral activity. Pilate was deceived. He thought that he was standing in judgment over Jesus. Don't be deceived. You're not standing in judgment over the Word of God. It stands in judgment over us before it can save us. There's so many in the world who don't have the opportunity to hear God's Word, who, who don't hear it explained and proclaimed. They don't even have access to it. But you do. Steward this. Don't lose sight of the fact that this is a privilege bought for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Take this seriously. God's coming judgment will be complete, and it will be just. For you, Christian, that means He will affirm, vindicate you before the world as righteous. But if you oppose Him, if you don't bow the knee to Him, King Jesus will do what is good and judge. Pilate here has seen enough. He's heard enough. I think he'd become more afraid. He starts, verse 12, to start, try to release him. But realize that Pilate, who thought he had all this authority to crucify him, didn't have the authority he thought. He can't even resist the crowd. They cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Here's this man with so much authority, and he can't even resist the whims of this crowd. You realize that the, the crowd remarkably now has pit Pilate against Caesar, and they've made themselves Caesar's friend. Pilate just wants to release him, wants to be done with this. He wants to keep his place in, in the Roman Empire. And so, verse 13, when he'd heard this, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat. Rome's official ruler seated in the place of judgment, ready to make his judgment on Jesus whom he's already said is guiltless three times. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. The innocent Passover lamb stands there as this Gentile ruler cries out, Behold, your king. It's so different from the crowning of kings in this world. I love the English monarchy. And when King Charles was recently crowned at Westminster Abbey, during the, the recognition as all British kings, he faced the north, the south, the east, and the west. And at every turn, the Archbishop of Canterbury said to the crowd, I here present unto you, King Charles, 
your undoubted king. Wherefore, all you who are come this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do the same? And they all respond, God save King Charles. That was and is a ceremony worthy of a king. This is meant to make a mockery of that. Behold the man. Behold your king. Pilate said them both to humiliate him. And yet, if you have eyes to see, here's your king. This weakened, opposed man, opposed by Jew and Gentile, opposed by the world, who's come to save. What do you see when you hear Pilate say, Behold your king. He's ready to judge him. The crowd is making their judgments on him. What's your judgment? Well, it depends on what you see. He's either an imposter king of no consequence, or he really is a king who has a kingdom that's not of this world, who willingly in this moment is substituting himself, subjecting himself to this to sacrifice himself for sinners. Here we have the world giving its verdict on Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh. This wicked world declared Jesus guilty. But I hope you see clearly who's truly guilty here. It's the world. It's Jew and Gentile alike. It's us. We are by nature against Jesus. Sin has so affected us that we ignore, we despise, we, we press down the knowledge of the true king, we rebel against him. And sometimes it looks very cleaned up. But the reality is, the miracle is that God the Son actually did come into the world to take judgment on himself that we deserve. But Jesus stood in our place, condemned. He is willingly here going to take punishment, penalty, we deserve for our salvation. And he accomplished that. And the resurrection proves to you that he accomplished that. His resurrection from the dead wasn't a private truth off in the corner. It's a public reality that has authority over everyone. And so you can't remain neutral to Jesus. He commands you to repent of your rebellion personally against him and to believe in him. That's the gospel that we stake our life together on. You can find life in Jesus' name and righteousness if you would repent and believe in him. What other king that you would have rebelled against would ever secure the terms of peace in this way? Not one that we would make up. This is the God who is. But the crowd couldn't see who he was. Rather than worshiping him, they wanted him to be done away with. They said, crucify him. I, I, when I read this, it, it, I never want to underestimate what sin has done to the human heart. He might have embarrassed them. They might not have liked him. He did nothing to deserve crucifixion. Pilate, for his part, is trying to release him, but he mocks him throughout the process. Shall I crucify your, your king? He's just been so passive again and again until they say to him, we have no king but Caesar. It's so tragic. 
right there before them is the king from heaven, the world's true king, their king. And they rejected him for King Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Behold your king. What do you see when he's held out before him, before you? Well, that depends on which side of the truth that you're on. John Wesley was the 18th century Methodist preacher so well known in England, and he was once in the King of England's private chamber, and he observed, I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was furrowed with age. He was quite clouded with care. Is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A blanket around his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarcely move under it. A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. What a bauble is human greatness. Even this will not endure. And then there was Jesus, crowned with thorns, beaten, bloodied, delivered to be crucified. What do you see when you behold this man? To receive him, to see him, is to see in that moment that there is the true and living God who saves sinners. There in that moment, as he goes to the cross, is his eternal glory being put on its clearest and its greatest display. Behold your King.